But I always say that about the about CPA and my time there. We were the only organization in Chinatown fighting for workers. When I got into um, got back into Chinatown, the hardest thing for many Chinatown groups was to take on Chinese bosses. And because most of the exploitation is within our own community. Now you can make an argument that you know Starbucks, Walmart is also doing exploitation, but for a lot of Chinese immigrants, they can only work for Chinese people. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone. Magandang hapon or magandang gabi. That is good afternoon or good evening in Filipino. Uh, and before we officially start, I want to invite all of us to acknowledge that though we are in a virtual space together for this event, we are all participating from physical locations. And if you are joining us from anywhere in what we now know as North America, then you are more likely than not living on lands that have been violently stolen from native first peoples. I want to also invite us to acknowledge that many of us find ourselves in North America as a consequence of the colonial and imperial violence which forcibly displaced our ancestors. That is certainly true for myself as a woman whose roots lie in the Philippines, a neo-colony of the United States. Finally, I also want to invite us to join in solidarity with those in the lands we occupy and descend from who continue to fight for sovereignty and self-determination. I am Robin Rodriguez. I'm currently a professor of Asian American Studies at UC Davis and the founding director of the Bolosan Center for Philippinic Studies. As a scholar activist, I work as much in the community as I do in the classroom. I'm involved in numerous organizations, but for today, I'd really like to lift up and mention the local work I'm doing in the greater Sacramento region as one of the founding members and now interim board chair of the Asian American Liberation Network. On behalf of the book contributors, including my co-editor and mentor, Dr. Diane Fugino, I would like to thank Haymarket Press for co-sponsoring this event alongside the University of Washington Press, the publisher of our book. Thanks, especially to Sean Larson for helping us to navigate the Skype platform for this event. We appreciate breaking with the monopoly that Zoom has had in serving uh, as a platform for many virtual events. Thank you for that. Amanda uh, Lundberg is also providing the, the captioning for this event. Thank you. This event kicks off a series of events organized by our book contributors on our recently published book, Contemporary Asian American Activism. Building Movements for Liberation in the Struggles for Prison Abolition, Global Anti-Imperialism, Immigrant Rights, Affordable Housing, Environmental Justice, 
fair labor and more, 21st century Asian American activists are speaking out and standing up to systems of oppression, though our activism and organizing is often invisibilized. Bringing together grassroots organizers and scholar activists, our contributors demonstrate that emancipatory futures require collective action and reciprocal relationships that are nurtured over time and forged through cross-racial solidarity and intergenerational connections. Our contributors present lived experiences of the fight for transformative justice and offer lessons to ensure the longevity and sustainability of organizing. In the face of imperialism, white supremacy, racial capitalism, heteropatriarchy, ableism, and more, our contributors celebrate victories and assess failures, reflect on the trials of activist life, critically examine long-term movement building, and inspire continued mobilization for coming generations. We couldn't be joined by all of our contributors. We have quite a number. But today, we will be hearing from Dr. Diane Fugino, Javed Tariq, and Alex Tom. Now, before I hand over the mic to them, I wanted to quickly go over the agenda for our discussion this evening or afternoon, wherever you may be. We'll start first with introductions from our speakers, who will then also provide very brief overviews of their chapters. I'll then lead a moderated discussion around three key questions. The first, our speakers are going to discuss the value um, of intergenerational perspectives and some of the key lessons from the Asian American movement. Then they'll discuss, uh, secondly, they're gonna then discuss uh, the key challenges to organizing today. And finally, they'll discuss the importance of radical analysis and organizing. And then we'll open up the floor for questions from our audience. And so don't forget, as uh, they come up, please put those questions in the chat. They will be uh, forwarded to me so that I could pose it to the panel um, after the moderated uh, part of our discussion. And with that, I wanna go ahead and hand it over to Diane Fugino. Diane. Thank you so much, Robin, and really greetings to everybody who's viewing this. Um, I wish we could see you, but we cannot. I um, live and work in Santa Barbara, California, the lands and waters of the Chumash people, and I am currently in Tongva land called Los Angeles. Um, and Robin is asking us to speak to our chapters, but I think that I'm going to actually speak to the book and why we put this together. And we started this process in 2018, and it seems like the world has changed with uh, COVID and with all, all, all the uprisings of 2020. But at that time, we remember those very, very difficult years that we were living in. And, you know, we, we were so awed, Robin and I, by the kind of activism going on on the ground in Asian American communities and being done by Asian American activists. And yet we recognized how invisible this work is and the kinds of problems that are caused by thinking of Asian Americans only as model minorities and the logic that extends from that, that we don't need activism, that you put your nose to the grindstone and you only do things through education and hard work and through sort of legitimate establishment mechanisms. And we know that there was a radical history that all of our communities have and grassroots activism that really changes the world. And we wanted this to be recognized. Um, 
We also recognize that for us, relational leadership and relational organizing is really important. And so we didn't want just people to write individual chapters to an anthology um, because we thought a book would highlight this kind of work that's happening. So we wanted to do something in book form. But rather than just inviting people to write chapters, we really wanted people to be in dialogue with each other. And so we organized a symposium that took place now three years ago in January of 2019 um, at UC Santa Barbara's campus where I teach and where Robin went to her undergrad and that's how we met. Um, and and we gathered people who were doing incredible work as community organizers and as activist scholars to come together and to do public programming. But the, the main thing also was the closed door sessions where we talked about movement building. We talked about the work that needed to, needs to be done and the struggles that, that are entailed in this. Um, and so this book that we have, right, uh, Contemporary Asian American Activism, its subtitle is Building Movements for Liberation. And that's one of our entry points was thinking about how we can build long term as organizers, not just as activists who participate in demonstrations or sign petitions or retweet, all of which is important, but as, as organizers, as people doing the difficult work of deep and sustained in day in, day out, week in, week out work that builds campaigns, that builds organizations, and ultimately builds movements that transform society, that redistribute wealth and resources, right, that get us to the kind of world that we envision and that we really want to live in. The second thing that we really wanted to do with this book is to think about the ways that social movements and grassroots organizing push society, push new paradigms, new new ways of thinking, new ways of doing, certainly new ways of living, but also new epistemological right forms, new ideas. And I'm thinking about the ways that ethnic studies building 50 years ago completely transformed the academy and the kind of knowledge that's, that's produced, um, ideas not about race and, and racial analysis for sure, but also about the need to always link activism and scholarship, right? Theory and practice. And I'm thinking about Robin Kelly and his uh, formidable Freedom Dreams book that looks that always talks about um, the ways that social movements are incubators for new knowledge and new ideas. They're, it's innovative. And so we wanted to capture the work of organizers to center organizing knowledge, right? The things that we need to know and learn in order to build movements for change. Um, and I think the third thing that we want to do is what we'll get into next, but really intergenerational change and the ways that um these movements build on earlier struggles, Asian American struggles and other struggles. So um, we have in the book uh, 12 chapters plus an introduction and an epilogue. And there are fabulous things like Eddie Zhang talking about his work as a prisoner in San Quentin and trying to get ethnic studies and being put in the hole for the you know, I guess, dangerous work of trying to get Asian American studies and ethnic studies inside the prisons. Karen Umemoto speaks about uh, work in intervention in Hawaii with the juvenile justice system and thinking about the ways that Kanaka Maoli or indigenous Hawaiian value systems and knowledge systems could be part of a restorative justice project that contests the carceral state. Um, 
Gayang Chung has written about undocumented Korean activism. Um, uh, Jessica Antonio about Bayon doing work in the Philippines. Uh, Soya Jung is, is looking at the work that they're doing at Change Lab in Oregon. Mei Fu is looking at different uh, political education that happens outside the academy. And she's looking at Southeast Asian communities as, as well. Anyways, I don't have everyone and we'll get to, to everyone, I think, as we go, but um, that's some glimpse of what the book is. Thank you so much, Diane. Javade? Hi, good evening, everybody. It's a really great honor to be in this panel. We are just uh, a soldier to fight for justice, rights, respect, and dignity. Actually, I'm a co-founder of New York Taxi Workers Alliance and also senior staff person uh, at uh, our office. As uh, I'm talking about that uh, activism about this, actually driving a taxi in New York City is uh, like 60 to 70 percent more dangerous job in other jobs, more than police and uh, fire brigades, because it was uh, so many robberies happening, so many killings happening, uh, because drivers used to have uh, 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 cash money in their pocket. So we started uh, organizing driver in 1996. At that time, CAV organization with called Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, they have this one project called uh, LCD, Least Driver Coalition, and our current leader and executive director, Bedvi Desai, she started working on this uh, uh, project. And that project was just to helping uh, taxi drivers. But she has a different kind of vision. When she was coming out and talking to the drivers, she realized it that she cannot just sit in office and help them, that driver needs to organize themselves. So meanwhile, I was uh, studying uh, photography in new schools of social research because I wanted to be a photojournalist. And I had a project in my mind because I saw one day a newspaper where around about 40 to 50 Drivers, the photographs was on front page and they all was killed by the robbers. So I had this idea that to do this photography about those cab drivers, because they are far away, half world away, living here, making a, a earning a money to send back home. What happened to their family when they died? So I cannot just take my camera and go and take their photographs. I become a taxi driver. I got my license. I start driving a cab and I uh, taking my camera with me and start uh, taking photographs of a real life of cab drivers. And meanwhile, I met Bervi Desai, who was uh, trying to talking to the driver about organizing. So there we team up. Bervi Desai, Biju Matthew, who is uh, also co-founder and uh, he is actually professor. So we started organizing driver in 1996. In the beginning, it was really hard for us because 
this is a scattered labor it's not in one factory that labor which uh, you can uh, or get together to people and you can talk to them it is scattered laborers so there we started organizing driver from one member to two member we have this idea that we should put some responsibilities on the drivers that they can pay their membership and they can catch us that we are paying your membership and we are accountable to them so then we started actually in 1998 we incorporated as a 501c3 new york taxi workers alliance so first of all people was thinking that this is a just a south asian organization because we all three was from india and i'm actually from pakistan bedwi desai and biju matthew they are from india and uh, bedwi was also very young at that time she was just 23 years old when we have our first strike on may 13 1998 so that strike really bring us on the limelight that uh, drivers are getting united so from there one by one one by one it take us 20 25 26 years to reach this point that today we have uh, over 26000 members and our uh, 90% budget is coming through our membership and uh, this is the only we have this office people were in the beginning they were saying us as a worker center but in our mind was not just uh, uh, just worker center we wanted to call ourselves a union even though we are a 501c3 in in 2014 we become a 57th national union under aflcio and this is the only union national union which is uh, uh, not covered by department of labor so we are on our own our, our own struggle we uh, we are doing this and so nowadays yearly over uh, 15 to 16000 members are coming to our office for different uh, services and uh, we are gladly there to help them as uh, we are growing up we have more than 100 countries peoples are in our membership they are driving a taxis in new york city they are driving yellow cabs they are driving green cabs they are driving uber cars lift cars black cars liveries and corporate cars so these all driver has to have a one license to drive in new york city so in this last uh, many many years we have uh, tremendous victories and uh, we got very very big victories which is a uh, uh, really helping uh, hard working cab drivers life and a majority of uh, cab drivers are from india pakistan and bangladesh and so there are the 60 to 70% majority of drivers are from south asia and even though we have uh, members from nepal bhutan tibet indonesia uh, hong kong and from different countries uh, korea they are china they are uh, our members driving here so it is a uh, like a like they are saying new york is a melting pot the taxi drivers are also gathered there from different religion different ethnic groups but we all have a one goal 
to achieve. We are fighting for justice, rights, respect, and dignity for the drivers. So that is uh, our principle that we are going on that uh, pavement road to help uh, all uh, working class families. Thank you so much for that. Alex. Uh, good evening, everyone. And yeah, I just want to, that was just so amazing to hear that story and that, that long arc of what it takes to really build working class power. So thank you for your service and your leadership in all of the, in the work, especially, yeah, just, uh, it's amazing to hear. So I wanted to, I just wanted to also just say, just building off of Diane's points, the project was unique for me because there was an emphasis of lifting up the voices of organizers on the ground. And to do this in partnership with activist scholars. And I say this is important because, and, and you know the right wing knows this, is that academia is a very important site of struggle. And for the way that this anthology or uh, yeah, anthology was, was created and produced, it really lifted up the voices of organizers doing work on the ground to the point where there was support for organizers to really articulate their thinking and their thoughts. And I think this is a challenge in our political culture where for whatever reason we have been trained, we meaning like my generation from the nineties was trained to just really grind and just do the work and not necessarily reflect right um, summarize lessons and to do that praxis is really important. So what I what I wanted to do with my chapter was to really talk about movement praxis and what I had learned and how how I came into this work is I started in high school and I was very fortunate to be born and raised in the Bay Area where there are a lot of youth programs that do a lot of political education and politicize young people. And of course, my family started in Chinatown and was um, you know, poor and working class in the beginning, but eventually started a small business in Chinatown. And so that also influences a lot of my thinking as well, right? So having deep roots in the community, but also having political education was very important. So I'm just going to name that I was part of a program that Eleanor Roosevelt started in the 1940s to combat fascism and anti-Semitism. And that program really transformed my life. And it gave me the opportunity, again, praxis to build with other communities of color, queer people, disabled folks, rural folks, um, Puerto Ricans, Latinx, Native Americans, Black folks, and other Asians. But it was like really a United Nations, if you want to call it that. And that was a very powerful experience for me because they didn't teach us like theory, but they taught us how do we build with each other the kind of society you want in the future. I was only 14. I had no idea what they were talking about. So, <laughs> but it planted important seeds, which is why I like to lift up why intergenerational is so important. So for my chapter, what I did was I 
I summarized my experience working at the Chinese Progressive Association for 15 years. And again, feeling very honored to be part of an organization with a rich legacy in the Asian American movement, but also in internationalism, building racial solidarity for over 50 years. Um, and this, the 50th year anniversary is this year, right? And I was able to really understand through the praxis of elders and working with directly with workers and also retired um, older women who were the, the first generation of the revolution in China. And those were my mentors. And I feel very fortunate for that because talking to other communities, many of the elders and we call them OGs, an endearing term, have been decimated and have been locked up, have been, have been really repressed. Not to say that has not happened to Asians, but to, just to say having access to elders is, is very important. And so what I wanted to do was to, to chronalize like what I learned and, and really thinking about how we build movement praxis towards a long-term vision and strategy and really thinking about our time, place, and conditions. The first thing I started off with was like, when I, when I meet with a lot of young people, there's a lot of pessimism right now. And that pessimism runs very deep and it's very deep in neoliberalism and there's a lot of alienation. So I talk about pessimism as something the system wants us to have. And then perfectionism, and especially as Asian Americans of Diane talked about the model minority. I think there is a, there is a way that we've been trained and socialized through the model minority to try to do things perfectly and to try to be a perfect ally, to have the perfect solution. And this is, of course, not all Asians, but perfectionism also is in other communities of color. But perfectionism is really a poison to not being able to handle contradictions. And the last one is very similar, uh, is purism, which is, I, I think about that as like ideological purity and a lot of the kind of sectarian tendencies that happened in the 70s and 80s. And and just look very different right now. And so I, I lift this up because part of my time at the Chinese Progressive Association, I was able to co-found a fellowship program called Seeding Change for a lot of young people who were in between, um, like from you know just graduating from high school to being in college, to really give them an opportunity to think about what is it like to do community organizing uh, professionally, right? To have a paid organizing job. And it, and it was not for everyone, but it was through this process is where I, I gained a lot of my lessons from listening to the young people and from them pushing back with me, the different ideas. And so being able to do that with workers, with young people, with elders, that's how you develop the, the praxis. And so I'm looking forward to sharing more about what I learned in that process, but just wanted to share a couple of those key points. 
If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA, to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Thank you, Alex. I'm going to go ahead now and move into uh, the moderated questions um, to have you, uh, to invite you to, to, to dive deeper into some of the insights that you share in uh, your chapters, but also, obviously also from your work. Now, one important approach that we take in the book, and this has come up a couple of times already, is an intergenerational perspective. I think speaking uh, for Diane, you know, I think we we were both when we wrote this book, we were thinking uh, a lot about um, the fact that the book was going to likely be primarily in the hands of younger generations, likely millennials and Gen Zers. Uh, and, you know, both of us, both Diane and I teach, have taught millennials, even um, are teaching Gen Zers now often even organize alongside both of these generations. Um, and we, But we've always also shared concerns that both generations, right, the Gen Z and um, millennials haven't had enough opportunity to learn about the Asian American movement in deep ways. In part, that has to do with um, what our fellow organizer, comrade Scott Nakagawa, has characterized as the presentist orientation to today's activism. And what, what Scott means by that is there's such a focus on the now uh, that what has come before is sometimes considered too old or irrelevant, um, even though the truth is, is that what's possible now is really linked and built upon uh, foundations of the Asian American movement. Uh, we also worry about the easy ways that cancel culture can be used to censure organizers. At the same time, we recognize that there are really important lessons to be learned from contemporary organizing that together with the lessons from the past can help us to build uh, better liberation movements. So, Diane, I wanted to just start with you, if you can maybe tell us, especially for those in the audience who aren't familiar with the Asian American movement, and again, that's partly why we write the book, we recognize that it's, uh, we don't have enough visibility of the Asian American movement, uh, never mind contemporary activism, but can you give us a broad overview of what the Asian American movement was about and what we identified in the book as the key lessons of the book? Yeah, um, I think I want to say how in awe I am of Javed and Alex, as well as the organizers in the Asian American movement of 50 years ago, who I've got to um, 
study alongside, meet, interview, write about, teach about, and actually organize with. Because many of the organizers or some of the organizers from 50 years ago are my dearest mentors and have shaped my own activism and organizing that I do as well as my thinking as a scholar as well. You know, in, in this book, Robin and I, in the introduction, we say that Asian American activism today cannot be understood without tracing its roots to the Asian American movement. And, you know, we both believe that this is so true, that whether people know that movement or not, they're being shaped in part directly because several of the organizers like Javed, like Pam Tao Lee, who's um, is in our chapter and the symposium that we had. She was the keynote speaker and Alex worked very closely with her at Chinese Progressive Association. Um, that, that we're working directly with, with the uh, activists from 50 years ago in the Asian American movement. But even if we don't know them, they're still shaping our ideas and the work. So I want to narrate that movement just as quickly as I can and pull out a few of the lessons that I think we'll see is still shaping Asian American activism today. So um, I'm actually writing about the, or researching and hope to write soon about the Asian American Political Alliance, this really important group that began in Berkeley in May of 1968 and also formed uh, chapters all over the nation, San Francisco State, in Los Angeles, Yale, uh, Columbia, all over the, the country. And one of the peoples I'm interviewing is Vicki Wong, a really dynamic, fiery, funny, witty person. And she was one of the founders of the Berkeley um, Asian American Political Alliance, or APA. And she always claims that the Asian American movement had to be had a particular place and time at which it began. And that was with APA, May of 68, Berkeley. And I am skeptical of that because I think about the ways that there's a continual temporality to social movements. So I kind of has, you know, I know that, of course, the, the Filipino farm workers were organizing from, you know, the Chinese left, Japanese American radicals, like this was happening, right? But I keep trying to prove her wrong and I, and I don't think I'm able to. I think she's actually right because the Asian American Political Alliance coined that term Asian America, right? That's something that's becoming increasingly known. And Asian America at that time when Hoppe coined it was meant to be deliberately political it was a strategic move. It wasn't saying that culturally all these different Asian communities or, you know, Chinese, Filipino, and so were similar in terms of religion, language, culture, but it was a strategic move to unite us against white supremacy. Um, and it was pan-Asian as we talk about, and then others like Dara Mayetta and well, all of us on this, on this Zoom talk about it also being third worldist all wrapped into one. And so as Vicki Wong saying that this was the first time that a deliberately conscious pan-Asian um, and, and deliberately political pan-Asian and third world organization formed and what became the Asian American movement. Um, there's a, at least two major lineages to this. One is the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War Asian Americans were participating in it and through that came together, formed contingents and then began to form organizations like 
the Asian Americans for Action in New York and like Opa on the on the on the West Coast and then nationally. And when Asian American activists of 50 years ago were protesting the Vietnam War, they were starting to do something different than simply the slogans for peace or to bring to you know bring the boys home to save American lives, which often got translated into saving white American lives. They were recognizing that they as Asian Americans were fighting other Asian Americans, and they started to bring ideas around imperialism, around anti-militarism, um, around self-determination, around, and they were linking to then a larger third world anti-colonial movement that was happening. We are the legacy of Bandung, right? Uh, the Afro-Asian conference in 1955 in Indonesia. The second major lineage has to do with domestically Black power as well as the U.S. third world struggles. And so from Black power, you know, groups like the Red Guard worked with the Black Panthers in the Bay Area in San Francisco and studied with them. And they wanted to join the Panthers and the Panthers told these they're mostly Chinatown, San Francisco Chinatown youth. You start your own organization. And they started the Red Guards in 1969. And so ideas coming out of Black Power, if you think about the Asian American movement started in the late 60s, it started in the moment of Black Power and was deeply shaped by ideas around self-determination rather than integration, for example. Um, and then alongside this were the U.S. third world struggles and these deep solidarities that existed. And many of the Asian American organizations were fighting for third world studies at San Francisco State, at Berkeley and elsewhere, right? What became ethnic studies and is continuing to have this huge legacy. Um, and I want to say that two hallmarks of the Asian American movement, there are many, but two are really the sense of solidarity and solidarity rooted in the kinds of um, right structures that I'm talking about, anti-militarism, anti-imperialism, they were post-capitalism. I mean, there, were, there was a variety of politics, but this was a real threat that ran through. Um, I, I, they, they were fighting against white supremacy. Uh, and also, though this wasn't brought to the foe the way it is today, women and some men too were really fighting and struggling against patriarchy and racial patriarchy. And the second thing I want to say that's really, I think, a hallmark of the Asian American movement is this collective leadership. The, not, you know, some groups did it more than others, but they were really trying to um, think that we don't make change unless we're collaborative, unless we're working together, unless we're sharing leadership and power, unless it's democratic. And this opens space in many groups for women's leadership. And that was really important. And I'll end there. Thank you for that, Diane. I wanted to ask uh, to turn to you, Alex. You've talked a lot about sort of key lessons um, that you've learned reflecting on your own work. And of course, uh, with Seeding Change, you've worked a lot with uh, younger folks. Um, and in the book, you quote, you're quoted, uh, you, we quote you as saying, we need a movement of movements today and for the future. And what would you say, Alex, um, you know, you shared in your introduction a little bit, some of the lessons you've learned from your own work, lessons from elders. What do you, what would you say are some of the new insights from younger generations of organizers that we as yelders, young elders <laughs> or elders uh, might be able to learn and build from? Yeah, thank you for that question. And actually, the movement of movements is from Naomi Klein, but <laughs> it's often often has been used. And 
I would say, maybe before answering that question, is as a Yelder, I do see myself as a bridge to the millennial and Gen Z generation, as I saw other elders um, were my bridge to other elders. And um, it is really important for us to remember what the young people are living through right now. And I have a seven-year-old son, and he is considered a Gen Zer because he's seven, <laughs> seven and on is um, that generation. And it's really important because um, in my time at Seeding Change, there were all these questions of, of like, well, how do we do this? How do we build solidarity? How do we do what the Asian American movement did in the 70s? How do we, how do we do this when there's these contradictions? And so there was this part of me that was like, I don't have all those answers. So how do I share? And I just really thought about it as a way for us to learn how to reveal our own journey. My journey as an organizer, as an activist, as a partner, as a father, as a human being, right? Because all we can do is make that offering. The time, place, and conditions from now and from when I was doing this work in the 90s are very different, right? And it's just very important to, to think about that. Like we are on this edge of neoliberal to neo-fascism. The state has been diminished. Privatization of schools, of workplaces, of, of just, of, of, you know, of, of our lives, right? We cannot begin to really tell young people what the answers are. But how can we share our own journeys and our own lessons to be able to help them answer the path forward? And I, th I think that's important. So in, in my chapter, I do offer like 10 lessons for young people. And a lot of it is like really learning from them. And so I'll give an example. In this, in this process of um, really thinking about what their contribution is right now as, as young people, what I learned from is something that's commonly said is like their heightened awareness that alternatives are needed. Capitalism is not just not working like economically, it is not sustainable for the freaking planet. And this heightened sense of awareness like my kid is already talking about it. And, and just thinking about what this generation has gone through, right? You had the first black president for eight years. And so people were like, okay, racial representation. And then you had Donald Trump, right? There's a lot of confusion about what is happening in this country around race, around class, but there's like this, this instinct that they have in this generation, I think is very useful. And that goes into the next thing is around, I just kind of broadly call it self-care, community care, healing, trauma, mental health, and wellness. This is a key contribution that I do feel like people on the left and also progressives have really failed to take on. And I say this is really important. And I in my in my chapter, I write something provocative that it's it is self-care, not selfish care, right? I think our generation tends to see a lot of young people 
as selfish, right? But young people are innovating on how to really take care of themselves in order for them to be in this for the long run, right? And, and when I've talked to so many elders from the 70s and even from the 30s, that's like the first reflection. It's like, we didn't know how to take care of ourselves and we're, we're unhealthy. We don't have stability, like a pension. We didn't think about any of that because we thought revolution was going to be right around the corner, right? And there's some fundamental change that is still around the corner. But I think, I think even for elders to share that with young people is very revealing, right? Because I had some young people, and I'll, I'll wrap this up pretty soon. I, had, I, I noticed um, was a few years ago, there was a lot of shade that was being put on uh, millennials, that millennials don't know how to organize. All they do is do stuff on Facebook and digital. And in one of the seating change classes, they were like, okay, we know what we don't know. So can you tell us what is organizing? You keep saying we don't know what organizing is. But none of, none of these, you know, elders like me have actually took the time to talk about what organizing is. We have just said what it's not, right? And I think that's, that, that is something that's a very humble uh, invitation, right? Because I think sometimes there's a perception that young people don't want to hear from us. They do. And they're still going to say things that are going to like, you know, probably piss, piss people off, right? So I think those are some of the lessons I think are really important. And then the last thing I just, there's a quote that I had that really changed my life at CPA. And it was when Pam Tally, who also has a chapter, one time she was just like, I really don't understand you young people. I just, I need you to just organize me to your thinking. I think we're somehow on the same page, but I don't understand the language you're using. Like when we say strategy, it means something different, right? But at the end of the day, she was like, happy limb, who was one of the founders of the Chinese Worker Mutual Aid Association, which is a predecessor organization to CPA in the 30s. He said, those revolutionary-minded youth who were advanced in their thinking had an unshakable determination and faith. I follow the advanced youth today. And it was that when she was just like, I know you all are onto something. I'm going to be here. I'm not going to be driving it. I'm going to, I'm going to be basically with you all. And I, I think that is how I've oriented myself in supporting the next generation. Thank you so much, Alex. I love that. Javed, I wanted to turn to you now. You know, I mean, it's so incredible the work that you're doing with the with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. Um, just at the scale of organizing, uh, just the challenge of organizing across kind of ethnic and ethnicity, nationality, language, religion, etc. Um, so, can you tell us, Javed, like what do you think are some of the best lessons from your organizing that you'd want to pass on? Uh, kind of continuing this thread that Alex is saying, you know. What do, if younger people are, are looking to, to us, those of us who've been doing this work, uh, for guidance on what is organizing? What do you feel like are some of the best lessons of organizing in your work? Yeah, as uh, our own experience organizing last 25 years, what we learn, which are the main 
things are to be to become an organizer and to organize number one is that you need a dedication and commitment if you start something you have to be continuously working on on that as i see i, I was talking that this is a taxi drivers are a scattered labor and uh, over 100 countries people are there they are different religion different ethnic group different way of thoughts different way of organizing so the main thing is first we have to bring them together on one platform the as when we started at that time india and pakistan two country was in the verge of making nuclear they are enemy of each other when we were going to airports uh, 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 taxi lot indian driver was standing on one side pakistani driver was standing on other side they were not uh, talking to each other as in uh, uh, seattle and other places we saw eritrean driver and ethiopian driver they they don't mingle with each other so first of all we have to bring them together on one platform so as we were the main organizers where we decide biju matthew they are from india i'm from pakistan what we started we we develop a world brother brotherhood that every driver should say to each other brother when we were organizing uh, our uh, uh, campaign for uh, uh, our strike in 1998 we were talking telling to the driver when you stop on a red light look on the right look on the left if there is other cab drivers are there if you see another ethnic group talk to him don't talk to your own people just talk to him that are you going to strike i'm also going to strike that's where the everybody will think yeah pakistanis are going to strike maybe bangladeshis are not going on strike so that thing first we have to bring them together in that way number two we leave our uh, uh country politics on back behind regardless ethnicity regardless religion regardless uh, country's politics we don't uh, uh, allow people to discuss about these things because we all are living in uh, in america we have to we all have the same uh, uh, what you call uh, problems so we have to solve our problems while being together so that things uh, we develop among all drivers like as i said that uh, even though we have around about 60 to 70% drivers they are muslim also so after 911 we had a very different kind of experience where instead of a black and white racism we saw a different kind of racism is become a, against the muslims so there was uh, after 911 so many incident happened with drivers they vandalized their cars they burned their cars they beat the drivers even though same people who wear turban and beard driver th- a lot of people think that they are the taliban it is totally wrong and they they start uh, uh, abusing them and lot of time a verbal abusement we have to hear from the passengers so we start a campaign among public for uh, against this uh, racism uh, 
Even though one big uh, incident happened, one of our Bengali driver, he got slashed by a white guy who was, uh, uh, spent little time in Afghanistan also. So he slashed him because he was a Muslim. So that case we highlighted as a, a hate crime. Otherwise, before there was nobody was talking about that. So that case become a very highlighted and uh, it make worldwide news where these things uh, slow down. Also, when um, uh, uh, President Trump uh, started Muslim ban, New York Taxi Worker Alliance immediately announced that we're gonna do a strike at JFK airport. And we did it. And that strike was so successful that uh, there was no taxis uh, on uh, at the airport. We all went there. Uh, and uh, to break our strike, Uber company, they started uh, uh, going against us. So a lot of people, uh, somebody started to uh, delete Uber. So that also happened. So we are standing with our members strongly, doesn't matter what religion, which ethnic group they are. And so we have to not only uh, they consider as a, just a taxi driver, these people might be their uh, uh, female family person is a, uh, domestic workers, might be their other brother is uh, uh, construction workers, might be their other religion, their janitors, or they are working in uh, fields or in farms. So that's the way we look at it. And we try our best to uh, verbally talking each other. There is a, a Murphy Center in New York with another labor school. We always used to go there to speak there to students. They also gave us some intern, young kids who, who do internship with us. They wanted to learn. They wanted to mentor. Uh, 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 yeah, they wanted to be uh, like a Bervi Desai, who was a very young at that age when she started uh, New York Taxi Workers Alliance. So, so those, those, those these things uh, give young uh, students, young kids, uh, encouragement to, uh, to to do this activism. Also, our other colleague, Biju Matthew, he's a co-founder of uh, YSS, Youth Solidarity Summer. So every summer, the young students get together for three, four days, and we teach them about uh, organizing, about, uh, about activism. So we, we try our best to... Uh, tell our experience and say these examples to young students that there's, and I'm, I'm really proud of it that first time I see in New York, some of our uh, assembly men's are South Asian and Asian. And now recently some of uh, South Asian and Asian uh, uh, city council member, they won and they all are young. They are not uh, too old like a, uh, <laughs> like me, but really, this comes, uh, this sparks in people's some kind of incident. When somebody in young age uh, have some, see some injustice and it is, this thing stuck in their mind, they have this kind of feelings to or to do something for justice. So, so that's those people. Uh, really think about to organizing and uh, coming together. Like when 25 years ago, we never heard 
that the South Asian community was uh, uh, do, uh, uh, doing anything. But now, other young people in the South Asian community, we also we see they are coming forward. They are trying to organize. So these things sparks in a young generation to maybe they, they will continue doing that uh, activism. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kavit. You know, in our work together with you, Alex, um, both in the chapter that you wrote for the book and even during the symposium where most of us first convened, you talked a lot about the new challenges we face in the contemporary moment. You know, those challenges, of course, are both external to radical and progressive movements, but um, like the rise of right wing and fascist politics, not only Trumpism, but even in Asian American communities, as well as trends internal to our movements. Can you maybe speak to both sets of challenges? Yeah, another very uh, big question. And I have I have a lot of thoughts on this and some things that usually come up when we talk about this is that there is a right wing in all of our communities, right? And I do think there is a hyper focus right now on the Chinese American right wing for, for many reasons. One is because there is a lot of China bashing that exists. And then there's also Chinese uh, people, especially now in the anti-Asian violence um, that is, is happening, uh, become uh, the center of the attention. And, and when, so we've done research about the, the new Chinese right wing, and we always get these questions. It's like, oh, are these people part of the Chinese government in China? And, I'm, and it's just such a, it's such a unsubstantiated kind of um, reaction because this just shows that there's a lack of understanding of who is actually part of the right wing. And so what I like to break down is that there's different segments in all of our communities. What I can speak to is the Chinese community. And there is a very emboldened right wing that Donald Trump had allowed to flourish in this society in, in the United States. And so there are the political, they're like the, the, the ones who have political interests nationalist agenda. And then the people who basically in our own community who are racist, classist, homophobic, we need to reckon with them and learn to organize them. Like what Javed was talking about is exactly what it is, right? And the way you do the organizing is like, we need to learn how to talk to them. So you do need to expose the right-wing contradictions, the class contradictions, and create some room for a conversation, even though there's people that will not really ever want to talk to you. But I always say that about the about CPA and my time there. We were the only organization in Chinatown fighting for workers. And that was a very clear class interest. And there would be people who came in who definitely did not believe, with, did not agree with us politically, but we were the only organization specifically supporting workers. And, and it was very important because we didn't say, oh, well, we're not gonna support you unless you sign on to these political beliefs, right? We knew that we needed to organize, listen to them, struggle with them, 
And so I know my five minutes stuff. The, the one, the one funny story I want to share is like when I got into, um, got back into Chinatown, the hardest thing for many Chinatown groups was to take on Chinese bosses. And because most of the exploitation is within our own community. Now you can make an argument that, you know, Starbucks, Walmart is also doing exploitation, but for a lot of Chinese immigrants, they can only work for Chinese people. And it was a big deal. And we were called anti-Chinese. We were called like black lovers. Like you only support black people and you want to really attack Chinese people. And it was one of our members who's like, well, my whole life, like from China, like Chinese people have always been oppressing me. I've never really understood. And then like, in, and then because, because in China, they basically lived and they worked under Chinese people. And so it was like a really helpful reframe because the right wing at the time was like saying, oh, you should go after the white bosses. How can we don't do that? And it was like our members who were like, well, actually, this is like creating like a false narrative because most of us work for Chinese people. Right. So it was just helpful to have conversations to reframe, help us be better organizers and also to lift up those contradictions better and better. Thank you so much for that, Alex. I'm going to turn to you now, uh, Diane. You know, we do in our introduction identify uh, challenges to contemporary organizing. And I'm actually going to combine one of the questions that came into the chat from the audience here. Um, and the question really has to do with, I think, uh, uh, the fact that Asian Americans, uh, some or many Asian Americans, enjoy relative privilege um, in the United States and to what extent they're able to join or support self-determination by the oppressed locally and abroad. So I guess, uh, you know, kind of to answer both this question of one, the sorts of challenges we, we talked about explicitly in the book, uh, but also somehow addressing this issue, which I think really has to do with uh, the model minority kind of myth and fact, right? On one hand, there is a way that Asian Americans enjoy a relative, you know, um, you know, privilege and, and that there's also a way that that model minority, uh, you know, idea is also very a myth. So maybe you can address that, Diane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I, I'm seeing a question that's talking about the ways that if Asian Americans benefit from mainstream culture, would they be able to join or support self-determination, right, by locally oppressed groups locally and abroad? And I think that... If we really interrogate how much this system is working for us, right, even people who can become, you know, solidly middle class or something, even if it seems like the system's working, you know, Alex mentioned the ways that capitalism and racial capitalism really isn't working for the majority of people, you know, all around me at the university and in Santa Barbara, and this is not isolated, but it is particularly bad in Santa Barbara, there's a major housing crisis. People cannot afford housing, right? People are like half of students are food insecure. There's, there's a survey done in 2017. Like this is not working. Even if I can put food on my table, if people around me cannot, it is not working for me. And the planetary crisis that we are all facing is one that shows that we are all interconnected. So to me, 
I understand that sometimes it seems like this system's working for people, um, but I really question, for one, how well it's working. Um, and then that's one. And and for many people, they, they seem okay, but if they didn't have a paycheck for one or two or three months, then I wonder what might happen and, and that these are happening more and more, right? The gig economy, that the, the neoliberal gig economy that Javed and the New York taxi workers are working in constantly, that has come to the university. We see that, Robin, right, with PhD academics not being able to get full-time jobs and doing part-time like lectureships everywhere. Like this society, I'm sorry, is just really not working right now. And um, so, so I think that that's one, one response I have to that. But the other response is a political response. And even if you feel like the system is working for you economically or socially, I feel like um, my own position is one of what I call deep solidarity and, and always thinking about the interests and how things affect the most vulnerable among us. So it's not working out of direct self-interest. It's working about thinking about what we need for ourselves as a society. I grew up Buddhist and in the in Buddhism, there's always this sense that we're all interconnected. We're all, you know, one that the pandemic makes that so clear, right? This idea that, that people around the world don't need to be protected from it and that people who maybe are vaccinated or then protected this just isn't working like this, right? We're all one, we're all interconnected. So that I'm trying to and, but Robin, if I may just take just really quickly, I do want to say something about these challenges to organizing because it's very much on my mind and in my heart right now. And I, I feel like, you know, Alex just talked about the right. I feel like some of the most visible Asian-American organizing has been organized by the right, right, in support of Peter Liang, um, right, the police officer from New York who killed a, a Kai Gurley, the black a father or, or or the Harvard affirmative action case, right? And and the right is really out organizing the left. And there's resources. Some there is some resources on the left too, but really it's on the, the right. And I and I really feel like we need a really deep and broad activist infrastructure on the left. Um, we were seeing that building in 2020, but but I think we need to push it and build it more. And I will say that from my position on the campus, um, it's something we're trying to do. We're trying to work more with community, but I feel like there needs to be deeper training, the kinds of things that Alex just mentioned uh, around how we all become better organizers. And then after people leave college campuses, where people can tap in, whether they want to become full-time professional organizers or whether they want to do that on a volunteer basis. And I know Alex's right uh, Chinese Progressive Association has um, seating change. Robin's um, the Bulasan Center has all kinds of internship opportunities. Um, and there are others who have these when they're so important that they exist, but there has to be a way that we can build this deeper and better together. And then I could really use that, Alex, you started saying, you know, talking about praxis and the unity of theory and practice, right? And so how, how important it is to connect the university with the community and to build these organizing um, opportunities and training for, for all of us. I think including us who are organizers, we need to deepen our skills too. Thank you, Diane. Maybe you could add some additional, if you feel like there are 
challenges that uh, either Alex or Diane hasn't yet haven't yet articulated challenges to our organizing today. What would you add? Uh, as uh, 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 Ms. Diane said said about uh, gig economy, that is uh, nowadays for labor. It is a big challenge for that. Uh, and Uber company become like a big name in gig, gig economy. We are not against uh, any uh, new technology, but we want fair uh, 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 fair wages for the drivers. So we are fighting for that. And uh, like uh, in 2014, we filed a case against Uber companies and we figured out that they were stealing money from driver. They have they gave back 86 million million dollars back to drivers in New York City. Then we were fighting for the uh, minimum wages. We we got for the Uber and Lyft driver $17.33 per hour that they should have at least uh, this much money that they can bring food on the table. Last Friday, we got another 5.83% wage increase for the Uber and Lyft drivers. So these kind of... uh, fighting going on for uh, uh, for the wages for the drivers because companies is making enormous commission. We want fair uh, wages for the drivers. Also, as a uh, Uber and Lyft, they are private companies. They still don't have any kind of rules or regulation against them. They can deactivate driver whenever they want. So if I am driving with Uber, I just bought my car and five years I got to pay my uh, mortgages to the car company and then I have to pay the insurance and tomorrow after one month Uber deactivate me, what can I do? I cannot uh, pay my bills, I cannot pay insurance, so I'm like a jobless. So for that, we file a lawsuit against uh, Uber company against uh, Department of Labor, and we won this benefit for the uh, uh, app drivers, Uber, Lyft, Juno, which are working for with apps, that they can collect uh, unemployment if they are deactivated. And that was a, a really, really a big success uh, because after right after that pandemic came, Driver was out of job, but at least they were getting $504 per week uh, unemployment, so they don't have to starve to death. So that was our big big success also. On the other hand, our biggest challenge is that, like, this is a corporate country. To break the real power of workers, company create their own union to divide workers. So the same thing Uber did it, they created IDG, Independent Driver Guild. Uber is paying them money. So they are calling to drivers that we are organizing app drivers and blah, 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 all wrong. Tomorrow, they're gonna stand with the company. They're not gonna stand with the workers. So that is, uh, we are fighting against them too, that uh, because uh, Uber has so much money, they can spend money in whatever they want. We don't have enough resources. Our resources are 
only $100 membership through the driver per year, 25 cents a day. With that, we run this whole office. If uh, we don't have a millions of dollars, like Uber is throwing millions of dollars to the IDG. But we are not giving up. We are fighting back. On the other hand, our the biggest success we got uh, in November for uh, yellow cab drivers, for the medallion owners, that economically was uh, 6,000 family were underwater under big loans, $800,000, $700,000. And Uber came and the price plunged down to 65,000. So drivers start uh, doing suicide. Nine driver suicide because they cannot uh, pay their uh, mortgages. They were underwater. It took us three and a half years on this campaign keep doing the working, fighting against that. Um, we got a big help from um, uh, Chuck Schumer, the senators, uh, uh, Alexandra Ocasio, this, uh, all politician was, uh, gave us a big sport. Other organization gave us big sport and we were keep fighting, keep fighting. I, and at least we did 45 days, uh, 24 hour camp in front of city hall and 15 days we did a hunger strike. And finally, we won that. Now, no driver is going to do suicide because we're going to get a, a guarantee backstop, guarantee from the mayor office that, uh, and the driver has to pay now uh, to the $170,000 for 20 years. So that is a, a big relief. And if driver cannot pay, he can just walk down, city will pay the money, to the lenders and they will sell the medallion to other person. So driver don't need to worry that the lender gonna take over on their homes or uh, other properties. So this is a big, uh, our victory also that we save 6,000 families uh, who are underwater. So things keep going on. We, we win one campaign, other two problems started. We win that, other problems started. So we have a, enormous uh, people against uh, working class people. Everybody want to take some money from working class people. So that we have to uh, always keep fighting. Yeah. Thanks, David. Um, I wanted to uh, let's see, we have about 15 minutes left and I, I want to make sure that we're both we're fielding questions. We actually had another question um that uh we were going to i was going to pose to to the panelists but um maybe we'll we'll move to the questions that were posed in the chat what do you what do you all think uh panelists should we kind of go with the initial question we wanted to answer or start move over to the chat okay we'll move over to the chat then i'm guessing yeah the chat questions let's do that Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, well, maybe I'll do, I'll try to do a combination. So part of, uh, you know, we've obviously talked about some of the key challenges to organizing, but we're also very hopeful. I think the consensus among all of us is that, that we share is that uh, we're hopeful for the future and we, we believe that radical analysis and practice is so vital to liberation. And so actually, Diane, if I can start with you, and this might also allow us to answer the question. There's a question about Asian, America, uh, Asian American movement and international solidarity. Maybe if you can kind of reiterate um, how, as you talked about at the very beginning of the talk, 
how internationalism was always uh, a part of the Asian American movement and continues to be part of the Asian American movement. Maybe it forms a vital part of our radical analysis, right? Uh, can you maybe kind of share a little bit more about that and how that's different from other forms of analysis? Sorry, Diane, I think you're muted. Now I'm unmuted, thank you. Yeah, I was thinking that this internationalism has probably only grown as the Asian American communities, all, 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 the, all the communities except Japanese America is majority immigrant. And so the, the, the connections to homelands matter, right? The connections to uh, the conditions in homelands matter. You started, Robin, talking about that in the Philippines and how that, the, you know, the work and support for uh, liberation struggles in the Philippines has always been part of your work, right? Um, and so I think that this is this is really key. And again, we can't do things locally without thinking globally about how how things are being impacted, especially living in this country, right, which disproportionately creates waste, disproportionately uses resources. Um, and Asian Americans, just like in the 60s and 70s, were really positioned to think about. Um, what's happening in Asia, what's happening around the world as it connects to Asian American communities. Um, I remember there was an activist working with the Little Tokyo um, LT Pro, uh, People's Rights Organizations in Los Angeles, Little Tokyo. And they were saying how with the gentrification happening in Little Tokyo at that time, this was early 70s, we, they needed to connect it completely to what was happening in Vietnam, right? And the same U.S. forces, um, you know, anti-racism against Asian Americans is clearly linked to what's happening. We can look at Atlanta. I'll just say this and I'll stop because I think Alex also wants to weigh in on this question. But, you know, what happened in Atlanta was about, um, you know, violence against Asian Americans, uh, rape, sexual violence against Asian American women. But those things wouldn't happen as people have been, some people have been talking and writing about without a history of U.S. intervention and militarism in, in Asia. There's a very clear line to that. So I'll, I'll go ahead and stop. I could actually maybe uh, uh, invite Javed uh, to speak to this a little bit uh, as well. You know, as, uh, uh, Diane sort of talked about radical analysis and what that that encompasses. Maybe uh, as as a full time organizer on on the ground, how would you uh, kind of describe what is radical praxis as an organizer? And it's a uh, as an organizer that. As I told you that uh, we have to see what uh, really uh, campaigns are coming and we have to make those uh, different strategies, how to solve that uh, uh, campaign, how to start that campaign and uh, um, work on that. We, we don't just bring our idea from our mind. We have meetings with the general drivers. There are hundreds of drivers comes in our meeting and we discuss with them and find out what kind of a problem they are facing and which big problem is uh, uh, they want to uh, work on that. Then we bring these ideas in our uh, organizing committee members. 
Then we talk between us, organizing committee, and there we start creating some kind of strategy and start working uh, on that campaigns. So, so far, in our mind, whatever we are doing, we are very satisfied because we are keep fighting. We never give up. And it is like a 25 years continuously working on that and more and more drivers uh, uh, are coming forward to stand with us. They understand uh, what is uh, the reality going on and how they have to face these challenges that uh, uh, alone they cannot do anything unless they are united. And we bring this our campaign, we joined together App drivers and yellow cab driver together because IDG and other companies start uh, dividing us, but we bring them on one platform. So that's uh, kind of things we are doing, and we are very positive that uh, we are uh, gonna keep winning different things. Uh, so uh, we just keep doing work. That's it, and uh, the main thing is uh, one. One-to-one -one is conversation. One-to-one -one yes. conversation, that is very important. Because when we started, there was no cell phone, no other things. We used to have a CB radio in our cars. And every ethnic group have their own channels. So we used to do it. But we were flying a lot. We were going to airport, talking to one by one to the driver. That's the way we bring in their consciousness all. And... Uh, they were becoming a member. They were not easy to become a member. So that thing was going on. Now, news, uh, that uh, uh, technology came. Now we are working more on our Facebook. We are, uh, uh, what do you call, Twitter, our website. So we started working on that thing. So slowly, slowly, our message is going out further and further. Also, we are not only just uh, uh, 57 National Union, we are also part of ITF, International Transport Federation, and we go to different countries to speak uh, about our organizing, about uh, uh, doing our work, which we talk to other countries uh, also. Great, thank you so much. I guess I'll, give, I'll hand it over to you, Alex, for basically, I guess, We'll see, depending on how much time we have some some uh, some final uh, thoughts. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> thank yeah. you. I just appreciate, Javed, what you're sharing is because I was going to end with just what do we do to draw inspiration? And the stories that you've shared today is for us to think about the long arc is that this takes work and it's not going to happen overnight. It's not like some kind of flash, um, like what we see on Facebook or Twitter, but that this is a long arc. And I think that's just important. So drawing inspiration from hearing these stories, like the, hun the hundred plus year arc of um, many struggles from suffrage to ending slavery to revolutions across right. the globe, right? So the other thing is like, we're in the belly of the beast and we need to draw inspiration from international movements, no doubt. And I think that is very important. So um, the things that I think about is like, where's the best decentralized organizing happening in the whole world right now? 
is in China, facing the most repression anywhere else in the globe. But there are people there organizing. They don't have to be on Facebook. I mean, some some of them are on social media. And like in the Philippines, like actually there are people in China who are learning from the Philippines, like how they're organizing under Marcos, right? It's happening. We just have to be out there to think about it. And then the other thing I just thought it would be important to share is like there was a question about like, what do we do next? And how do we unite across all of these differences? I think the first thing I would say, it goes back to praxis and just like, let's not get stuck in contradictions. We know shit is fucked up and it's going to be hard to unite across differences. So what do we need to do is like the how to practice doing something and you're going to mess up. And really that is like, I feel like I've learned that so much. There's a lot of, there's a lot of regrets of not doing things as um, Brene Brown says, <laughs> but doing things is very important. Um, and then I guess in the last couple of thoughts, there's a role for people everywhere. Not everyone has to be a paid organizer, but everyone has to be organized. Does that make sense? It's like, we don't all need to be professional organizers. You can be a teacher. You can be an artist. You can, like, Javed was going to be a photographer. He would have been a great organizer. But there is also a paid profession to organize, right? Just wanting the difference of a value in a profession. And not all of it is in a nonprofit, right? There, it's like, we just need all of it. And this, these are the lessons I've learned from international movements. And um, yeah, so I'll leave it there because it was just a few more minutes. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's an excellent way to end because really that's right. Uh, we all need to organize and we can organize uh, wherever our feet land. I think that was something that came from Pam Tao Lee and comes out in the book. Uh, certainly Diane and I both teaching, uh, you know, I often joke that the university pays me, but I work for my people. And so, uh, you know, both Diane and I, for instance, uh, we still are organizing in our communities, organizing on campus, organizing alongside our students. I was organized by Diane so much of my own uh, work as a uh, activist um, on campus. And then eventually later on, once I graduated, uh, you know, uh, helped facilitated by was facilitated by my work alongside Diana as, as a comrade, not just as a student. And so just to conclude, again, thanks to all of you who joined and stayed on for the entirety of this event. Um, thank you again to all the organizers. Thanks to the panelists, for everybody uh, out there. We do invite you to uh, continue to follow along. You know, We are going to continue to do multiple events around this book if you want to continue your learning about Asian-American activism, the Asian American movement, Asian or uh, American organizing today. Uh, so you can follow our work on AsianAmericanActivism.com so you can see the events posted there. More than anything, get involved, organize. Um, there are so many ways to plug in and we will do the best we can to update the website. The intention for all of us, when we came together to, to write this book, was we did not want people to simply read and put it down. We hope that people would read, put it down, and head out and, and start kind of connecting with the movements that we lift up in, in the book. There are so many ways to, to participate, and um, every little bit that we're able to contribute counts. And again, thank you so much. Um, of course, get the book. <laughs> uh, read it for yourself. Um, it's always great to read a book and then 
put it down and pick it up again and find new insights. But again, um, key lesson really is to, to learn, to process and to organize. So thank you so much to everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.